0: Hello. So, as you heard before, my name is Alistair. I'm studying uh, music and ancient history, first year. And so, yeah, yeah so we'll be reading from the Bible now. Um, this semester we've been looking through Romans, and so that brings us to Romans 11 uh, today. And you can follow along in your booklets. So, this is Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 1. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to it? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear, to this very day. And David says... May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostles to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now sharing in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they may too now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him all are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.
1: Thanks Alistair. Let me just try and turn some lights on. I can see you now. Good. Um, you'll find an outline uh, on the handout if that's helpful for you. The future of Israel. We're going to get there, but I want to start by talking about Australia and Australians. Um, one of the things I appreciate about Australians is generally they're quite polite, at least to your face. Maybe not on Facebook, but to your face. I remember uh, sitting around with a group of friends and, and conversation turned to UFOs and aliens and a few people were saying, wouldn't it be cool if you actually met one of these green uh, monsters or whatever they might be? And the sort of fun and banter uh, went on for a little while and, and as a Christian I saw an opportunity and I thought I'd take it, I'd be courageous just this once and I said, I think we have been visited. And they said, but when? What do you mean? I, you can't really believe that, can you Tim? Are you talking about Roswell, or Area 51, or Innerloo, or where? <laughs> I said, well, 2,000 years ago, we were visited by God himself. And there was a sort of short, awkward silence, and finally somebody said, who do you reckon is going to win the footy this weekend? <laughs> People will believe all sorts of hogwash about aliens and crystals and stars and their effect on your destiny, but the clear compelling evidence, the public evidence that God visited our planet, hardly seems to create any interest. My my experience is that most Australians, my fellow Aussies, seem quite hard towards the, the news of Jesus Christ, which is a bit bizarre. After all, if you had a product that could add 10 years to their life, they're interested. Even if it costs a packet, even if they've got to change their whole lifestyle, they're interested. But Jesus, who offers immortality for free, no interest. That defies explanation, doesn't it? There are some wonderful exceptions. I've met many people on this campus who are interested and curious. Many of the international students who come from Southeast Asia and other parts of the world seem open and interested. But my fellow Aussies, well, it just feels like I'm banging my head against a brick wall. The best news in the world, and they'd rather watch the bad news on TV. Polite, but hard. Recently we had an interfaith dialogue between a Christian and a Muslim, and I I met and got talking to quite a few Muslims over those two debates, two um, dialogues. But they seemed so hard. They, They were just locked in. They didn't want to hear anything else. If you're a Christian, have you experienced that? And how do you respond when there's disinterest and hardness? The most obvious response is just to throw in the towel, isn't it? I'm sick of banging my head against a brick wall, I just give up. Australia, well it seems like we're under the judgement of God for our selfishness and greed, for our treatment of the unborn and asylum seekers. Maybe Australians are just a lost cause. We may as well just withdraw into our little Christian ghetto inside a lecture theatre. Well, maybe you think it must be our fault. That at least is a bit more noble, isn't it? Maybe we don't pray enough. Maybe we've, we haven't got the right strategies. And in our desire to see people come to Christ and our disappointment, we become easily pray, easy prey to any promise of success, any strategy that offers a silver bullet, whether it's a seeker-friendly meetings or uh, identifying territorial spirits or a disciple-making program. Now, not all those things are bad, but none of them are a silver bullet, I don't think. Well, Romans 9-11, to these three chapters we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, they come out of Paul's own experience of seeking to evangelise his fellow Jews, his fellow Israelites, and frankly it's been very discouraging for him. Israel has proved very hard. Most of them are passionately religious, they have a zeal for God, as we saw last week. They want to be righteous before God, but they're trying to do it by their own effort, by their own obedience. And in doing that, they've rejected their own Messiah, Jesus. And Paul knows that because he was one of them. He rejected Jesus. He persecuted Christians till he was converted to faith in Christ. And now for 20 years or so, he's been traipsing the length and breadth of the Eastern Mediterranean. And everywhere he goes, every city he comes to, he begins with the Jews. But as he begins with them, almost all of them reject the gospel of Jesus. They oppose Paul. He gets hunted out of town after town. But the Gentiles, those who have no connection with with Israel, with with their God (coughs) and, and with their Messiah, many of them are turning to Christ. They've been responsive. And Paul's question is, why is Israel so stubborn, resisting their own Messiah, rejecting the wonderful forgiveness and life that he brings? And Paul's trying to make sense of that. How can that be? If you were with us last week, you'll see that part of Paul's answer is, well, it's just their fault. It's their responsibility. Chapter 10, verse 21. All day long, says God, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. They're not ignorant. They're obstinate. They're hard. They have sclerosis of the heart, like so many Australians. But Paul knows that God is God. He really does rule, his will will happen, so his will is not thwarted by human freedom, not even by human disobedience and obstinance. He doesn't think of God as an impotent bystander, sort of wringing his hands, wishing he could change what was happening, but being left on the sidelines. Oh yes, people are responsible, but God is sovereign, back in chapter nine, verse 18. He said God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And so if there's hardness, it must be part of God's purpose, part of God's plans. It must be something that God intended to happen. It must be part of a strategy. And in chapter 11, verse 1, he asks about that strategy. Did God reject his people, Israel? And his answer is no. He's asking the question, has God sort of swapped plans? In the Old Testament, Israel was his people, he loved them. He, but when they turned hard, he said, I'll blow them. I'll find another people, I'll find Gentiles. I'll, they'll become my people. Is that what God's done? Replaced Israel with Gentiles, with people like us? Paul's answer is, no way. No, and he looks at himself and says, I'm a Jew. And I'm part of God's people, he's saved me. It can't be that he's rejected Israel. And he points out in the Old Testament that what was happening there was, although Israel was a big nation, often there was only a small remnant whom God had chosen who were faithful to him, like in the days of Elijah, who were given faith and repentance. No, it must be that God has caused Israel's stubbornness. And he quotes in verse 8, an Old Testament passage, that, that says that God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that couldn't see, ears that couldn't hear. But why would God do that? That seems really weird, doesn't it? Paul thinks there must be a purpose to it, but what is that purpose? And Paul discerns in God's action a brilliant strategy. And he explains that strategy a few times. You might have picked it up um, as the passage was read to us. Listen to verse 11 and 12. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, Israel's transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Or well, verse 14 uh, In the hope that I might arouse my own people to envy. And save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Or verse 25, 26. Israel has experienced the hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Do you see what he's talking about, what he's he's describing? It's a a strategy, a bit like a chess strategy. If any of you are chess experts... You'll know, and I've never been able to achieve this, but you know that you've got to think at least four steps ahead, don't you? You've got to think, if I do this, what will they do? And then what, what can I do and what will they do and what will I do, what will they do? And strategize far ahead. And Paul sees that that's what God is doing. He has a strategy that has four stages to it. The first stage is Israel is hardened so that Gentiles will be saved. They're hardened against Jesus. And that was true even in Jesus' lifetime, wasn't it? They were so hard that they crucified Jesus. And as the message of Jesus has gone out into the world, they've rejected that message. They've been hardened by God. But that hardening is not some sort of mess that God tries to clean up, salvage something out of. God has a purpose in it. Because in Israel's being hardened, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, to people like us. And many of the Gentiles have welcomed the message and been saved. He sort of does a a what-if scenario, you know, those mind exercises. What if the Jews had embraced the gospel? What if bulk of them just responded? Then Christianity in those first years, the first decades and centuries, would have been very, very Jewish. And the Gentiles would have been left on the outside. Sort of like AFL. AFL is very parochial, isn't it? It's only in Australia. What's got to happen for AFL to break out of Australia? Well, it's got to lose popularity, doesn't it? While it's really popular in Australia, what's going to happen? It's much better to play it in Perth than in Shanghai, because in Perth you'll get 60,000 people. Shanghai, you'll get 6,000 people. It's not worth it, is it? While it's popular here, it won't go elsewhere. But if we all stop going, they'd have to find other markets, wouldn't they? Well, that's sort of what happened to the Gospel. The Gentiles heard it because Israel rejected it. God hardened Israel. Because his plan back then was, and still is, to have mercy on the Gentiles. He revealed that in the Old Testament. His salvation was to go to the ends of the world. And in Paul's lifetime, that was happening big time. But is that rejection, is that hardening of Israel permanent? Is it final? Has God swapped Israel out for the Gentiles? Well, that takes us to the second stage. Verse 11 Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? No. And he sees the second stage is as Gentiles are saved, Israel will see that and get jealous. They'll see the Gentiles enjoying God's salvation, his forgiveness, the freedom that comes in Jesus, the gift of the Spirit and the sure hope of resurrection and they'll feel jealous. They'll wake up to what they're missing out on. Now notice that Paul thinks that God works through normal human reactions and motives and emotions, like jealousy. But he sees those as used by God, as purposed by God. And that's a helpful little insight, I think, into the way Paul thinks. That is, if you have a psychological explanation for why something happens, that doesn't mean that God is uh, now discounted as a, a, a reason for it, a cause of it. That doesn't mean that God is not behind it. That's reductionism. And most of us know that. If you're a Christian, you can probably explain how you became a Christian psychologically. This happened in my life and I thought that and I went through this and for some of us it was a crisis, others it wasn't. Does that mean God was not involved? No. God is involved. He works even in our psychology. The third stage is Israel being jealous and therefore being saved. Verse 13, Paul says he takes, uh, um, uh, I take pride in my ministry to the Gentiles in the hope that I may somehow arouse in my own people to envy and save some of them. Jealousy leads to a change of heart, soften them, save them through faith in Jesus. You can imagine, imagine one of your friends finishes year 12 and just does that year 12, year 13 thing of becoming a lazy layabout who does nothing. Just goes on the dole, bums around doing nothing. And Then he sees you go to uni and start to make something of your life. And others get an apprenticeship and they're training in something they have got to use for the rest of their life. And one day they, they get envious of you and think, I'm just stuffing up my life, aren't I? And so they decide to enrol at uni. Well, that's what he imagines Israel is going to do. That's the the strategy of God. The timing of it? Well, verse 25, he says, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Then there'll be a sort of switch. The jealousy will bear fruit. And he says, all Israel will be saved. It doesn't mean every single Israelite, but the trickle will become a flood. And so there'll be a major major turning to Jesus in faith amongst the people of Israel. And if that happens, says Paul, that will mean life from the dead in verse 15. Now, I'm not quite sure what he means by that. It's a bit cryptic, life from the dead. He's talking about the resurrection at the end. I think that's what he's saying. When will that be? Well, at the end, near the end. When the full number of Gentiles has come in, then Israel will be saved. Which fits with what Jesus himself said. He told his disciples to make disciples of all nations. That's the purpose of God. Jesus said the gospel must first be preached to all the Gentiles, to all the nations, before the end comes. So what stage are we in if you think about these four stages of the strategy? In Paul's day, it's clear it's stage one. Israel's hardened, Gentiles are being saved. And it looks to me like it's still in stage one today. There is a steady trickle of Jews who become Christians, but it's not very many. I keep meeting them, but it's only a couple a year. There's no flood yet. God's end point is heaps of Gentiles and heaps of Israelites becoming uh, Christians, having faith in Jesus, being saved. And Paul thinks that's a brilliant strategy. And his strategy is based on two unshakable convictions. The first is that God's election, God's choice, is irrevocable. That's what he says in verse 28-29. As far as the gospel is concerned, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, the Gentiles. But as far as election is concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Once God has chosen, he's chosen. Now at the moment he says they're enemies, they've rejected Jesus by and large so that Gentiles will be saved. They've been hardened, but that's partial. Majority, yes, but partial and temporary. God hasn't cancelled his choice of Israel. He chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and and through them the nation of Israel to be his special people. He made promises to bless Abraham's descendants and he's not going to revoke those promises. Israel is still God's chosen people. They have a special place in God's heart. That doesn't mean they'll all be saved. But it does mean many will be saved. That is the future of Israel. And it's fascinating and instructive, I think, just to look at world history. Israel as a national identity has survived 2,000 years of dispersion across the globe, holocaust and many similar attacks on them. Now, that's different to the Moabites and the Philistines and the Edomites. You haven't meet many of them, but even on this campus... You'll meet many Israelites, many Jews. God has preserved them because he still loves them. The second conviction is that mercy is the beginning and end of God's work. Verse 30 sort of sounds convoluted. Just as you who are at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that they may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Sort of gets round and round in circles, doesn't it? What's he saying? Well, he's saying that, well, let me ask it this way. What is the prerequisite for receiving mercy from God? It's that you're disobedient, isn't it? So what has God done? Well, the Gentiles were disobedient, really, really disobedient. They needed mercy. God gave them mercy. How did they get it? Through the Jews being disobedient. The gospel. God was so determined to be merciful to the Gentiles, he consigned Israel to disobedience. But if he's consigned Israel to disobedience, it must be like the the Gentiles. It's so that they can receive mercy. If God consigned Israel to disobedience, it must be because he has plans to be merciful to them. That's Paul's uh, logic. His conviction. So in verse 32, he summarizes it, not just for Israel, but for everybody. God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. God has imprisoned all peoples of the world into disobedience in order to have mercy on them Gentiles, Israel, Aussies, Muslims. And his purposes, his plans are in motion. It's going to happen. So, what are the implications? Firstly, for anti-Semitism, a, a, a hatred, a, a, an opposition to Jewish people as Jews. Well, this chapter is written to Gentiles who attempted tempted into anti-Semitism of a particular sort, of, of being arrogant over them. That's what Paul's trying to counter. Uh, he says in verse 18, Don't consider yourself to be superior to these other branches, to the Jews. He says in verse 20, You are grafted in. Don't be arrogant, but tremble. Or in verse 25, so that you won't become conceited. So he's tempting for Gentiles who've become Christians to say, look at the Jews. They crucified Jesus. They opposed gospel proclamation. They're under God's judgment. They deserve it. And so we blame them. We demonize them. And we can justify that theologically. The church, us, have now replaced Israel as God's people. We Gentiles are now God's chosen people, not Israel. And that's exactly what Paul is countering. He says, no, that is not true. God's call is irrevocable. Israel are still special to God. Their election is indelible. Yes, the church is now the people of God, the saved people of God, the children of Abraham by faith. But the church isn't just Gentiles. It's Gentiles and Jews. Chosen individuals from both. The relative absence of Jews from among us is only temporary. It's going to change. So no arrogance, no anti-Semitism. But there is an opposite error of what is often called Zionism. Some Christians are convinced that Israel is still God's chosen people, which is right. And they feel, therefore, they should support them in all their political aspirations, in occupying the land of Palestine and rebuilding the temple. And so 1948 and the events of 1948 become really significant for them. That's when God was bringing restoration. That was what God had promised and now it's happening, giving Israel their land back. And in doing so, they justify terrible injustice against Palestinians that continues to this day. But Paul has no interest in political and military structures of the Jews in Palestine. The restoration God promised to Israel The restoration that comes out of God's commitment to them as his chosen people is forgiveness through faith in Jesus. That's the restoration. It's not getting the land of Palestine back again, gathering as some sort of national entity. And his theology leads him to do what? Well, not political Zionism, but to preach the gospel of Christ. But ironically, in this age evangelising Jews has become seen as anti-Semitic. George Carey, who was the uh, former Archbishop of Canterbury, um, inherited a position as the patron of an organisation called Jews for Jesus, which was just an organisation of Christians who sought to bring the gospel to Jews. He resigned from that. Why? Well, there was a bit of political flack over the the anti-Semitism of evangelising Jews. I have a a friend who's a Christian, uh, who's a Jewish Christian. He was evangelising Jews in his neighbourhood, in his community. And the local rabbi wrote a a, a letter to the newspaper complaining about the anti-Semitism of evangelism. But for Paul, it would be anti-Semitic to stop evangelising. you see that? He keeps going out of intense love for his fellow Jews that they would receive mercy, the mercy God destined them for. Let me finish. I've got one minute. No, have got minus one minute left. If you're willing to stay with me just for one more minute. How do we respond to the hardness around us, if that's your experience? Well, what does Paul do? Well, he keeps praying for and evangelising his fellow Jews. He prays and longs that they receive the salvation that Jesus has won for them. He sees their hardening as temporary because God wills to have mercy on them. But at the same time, he makes the most of the responsiveness of the Gentiles. God is at work there. Doors are opening. God is being merciful, so he evangelises like crazy. And he shows these off to Israel in the hope that it will provoke them to jealousy. Now, I find that really helpful and encouraging personally. Take a leaf out of Paul's playbook, especially when I'm frustrated and disappointed with the hardness of Aussies and others. Because it's not just Israel God intends to have mercy on, it's all in verse 32. Including Aussies and Subbies and Muslims and my neighbours. And so keep praying and sharing the gospel with Australians and Muslims and the Japanese and Europeans. Never give them up as a lost cause. God is saving some. It's a trickle at the moment. May it become a flood. And go where the response is. If international students are responding, go and put some energy in, join focus and be involved in what's happening there. Go to places overseas where there's opportunities where God is opening doors. And show off where people are embracing God's mercy. Tell my hardened neighbours about it. Maybe God will provoke them to jealousy. Amen.